You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. About a decade ago, there was a a team of research psychologists that put together a project to study the relationship between uh, someone's devotion to the Christian faith in correlation to their devotion to following and adoring celebrities. The team consisted of one research psychologist from England and one from the United States, and the study was uh, a pretty decent size, 307 participants, uh, and they were asked questions, these participants, that was, these questions were intended to gauge their attitude towards not only the Christian faith, but also towards their favorite celebrities. And so the whole thing resulted in a research paper that these two individuals uh, wrote and published that was titled, Thou Shalt Worship No Other Gods Unless They Are Celebrities. In the paper, they uh, shared their findings, and here's what they found. They found that that there were, as, as a person becomes more and more devoted to the Christian faith, they are less likely to be deeply enamored with other celebrities. So on, you have one set of people who scored very high on their religious affections towards God and towards coming to church and the, the spiritual practices that entails coming to church and being an active member there in that community, while also scoring very low on their interest towards other celebrities. But then you had another set of people, they scored very high on their enamorment with celebrities, their kind of almost celebrity worship, and very low in any kind of interest in the Christian practices or the Christian life. But there was one additional group that made this study really very interesting. And uh, in this particular group, they scored high in both categories. Very high in religious affections, very high in their interest in following celebrities. In the paper, the researchers concluded, many religious people apparently ignore the religious teaching to worship no other gods or fail to connect it to their worship of celebrities. In other words, the research suggests that there are people in the church who are engaged in activities and or thought processes that should be mutually exclusive to one another, meaning they can't happen at the same time, and yet they're doing both simultaneously. So they're, they're following the Lord, and they're engaged in worship, and they're engaged in the Christian practice, but they're also almost in this sort of like worship state with celebrities that they follow, whether that be in music or movies or TV shows. They're doing both at a very high level. Now, the Bible is full of warnings against such practices, the, the, these practices that the Bible would see as mutually exclusive to the faith, practices that are contradictory to Christianity. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of them here is, uh, is referenced in the title of this research paper. It comes out of Exodus chapter 20, which is the, the Big Ten, right, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, you shall have no other gods before me, meaning you cannot worship the the God of the Bible, and also worship other things. These are, these are mutually exclusive practices. If you choose to worship other gods, in other words, that is idolatry, that's what the Bible calls it, and God will not accept your worship because it will, it will be worship that comes from a place of, of sinfulness, of, of, of a divided heart, which the Bible says you can't do. 
They're, they're mutually exclusive. Jesus gives an example of mutual exclusivity as well. He talks about uh, the love of God and the love of money, one of our least favorite passages in all of the Bible. Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, he says, God and money. Again, it is an either or. You can either do one or the other, but you can't do both. You will inevitably love and trust God and you will forsake your pursuit of money. And that's really what this passage is dealing with here. It's not necessarily that money is bad. It's that the love of money is bad. The prioritizing of money over and above all things is bad. And what Jesus is saying is if you love me and you pursue me, you will forsake your pursuit of security found in financial things or material things. Or you're going to be devoted to money. You're going to be devoted to pursuing these things and it's going to come at the expense of not pursuing the Lord in a right manner. But you can't do both. They, they don't exist in the same space. They're mutually exclusive practices. Now, this morning in our passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, we're presented with a lot of things up front in this passage that John is really more or less just reiterating to us. They're things that we've already talked about pretty at length in previous messages in this series. So in verse 13, he talks about having confidence in your salvation that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about that, I think, about three weeks ago, right? The importance of the Spirit in your life. It cannot be, cannot be overstated. You have a confidence that God has called you into his family, into the kingdom, primarily because of the witness of the Spirit in your life. In verse 15, he talks about the importance of confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So again, two weeks ago, we talked about testing the spirits, and we talked about there at the end that the confession of Jesus as the Son is incredibly important. It's been an incredibly important confession since the beginning of, of the history of the church. In verse 16, he talks about the importance of abiding or remaining. Remember that Greek term, meno, to abide or remain within Christ and he in us. And Dr. Reeves talked about that about a month ago out of the Gospel of John. He, he did a little bit of a, a deep dive into what it means to abide or remain in him. And he talked about how when we abide in the, the, uh, the vine, the branches bear fruit. I did a whole deep dive on, on what that relationship looks like of remaining in Christ and he in us. So a lot of the front part of this passage deals with things that we've already talked with or talked about pretty at length. But specifically, in verses 17 through 21, John presents us two new ideas that we have not yet discussed. He speaks of two separate choices that you are going to be presented with that you will inevitably be forced to make as a Christian. There is no escaping this at all. If you are a believer in Jesus, you will be confronted with these two choices between two separate things. And further, these choices that you have to make are mutually exclusive things, meaning you can only choose one of them, you can't do both. They don't exist in the same space. It's either the one thing or it's the other thing, it can't be both things. So we have our work cut out for us this morning. We're gonna dive in and talk about these two separate choices, but they are both kind of connected as well because they both have to do with the overarching theme, again, with the second half of this letter, which is love. Here's the first choice that you're gonna be presented with as a believer that you need to think through and, and, and understand, and that is the choice between love and fear. The choice between love and fear. Look at verses 17 and 18. John says this, by this is love perfected with us 
so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, at first glance, it almost seems, again, like John is repeating himself from what we talked about last week. Notice that John talks about the love of God being perfected in our lives, which we dealt with last Sunday, last part of that message, the love of God being perfected in his people. But notice that this time, the love of God is being perfected in us for a different reason. So last week in verse 12, we talked about how God's love is perfected or completed. It's that Greek term teleao, a word that means to execute fully or to reach the end of or to run through. (laughs) It conveys the idea of God's love meeting its end goal or its end purpose, coming to its fullness or completion. So it doesn't convey the idea that God's love is somehow imperfect before this, but that God's love is in process and it comes to its completion in these moments. And in verse 12, one of the ways in which God's love becomes completed is when we carry out the love that God has for us to other people. That sacrificial, satisfactory, uh, uh, selfless love. When God loves us in that way, he not only demonstrates it to us, he delegates it to us to then be given to others. And when we do that, when we love with a biblical Christ-like love that's built on action, that's rooted in the truth of scripture, God's love is perfected or completed in those moments. But now, in verse 17, God's love is perfected or completed in another way, in an additional way. This time, Whenever we face the reality of judgment, but we do so without fear. So let's talk about our favorite topic for a Sunday morning, judgment for a moment. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding about it being our favorite topic. We are going to talk about it. Um, Judgment is something that is usually tied to fear. Can we be honest about that? it's It's not normally like a positive thing. It's normally a negative thing. John is saying... That in the moments where you face judgment without fear, which is not normal, when you face judgment without fear, God's love is completed or perfected in that moment. Now, this passage assumes a couple of things that I don't want to assume you are fully aware of. So I want to give you some context here so that we're all on the same page and we can understand what John is really getting at. The context here in this particular passage has to do with a day of judgment, Judgment Day, not like the Terminator 2 movie blockbuster hit from the early 1990s. Um, Okay, no, fine, all good. Uh, This is the real day of judgment, the real day of judgment. And and there are two things that I want you to know about it so that we're just kind of sort of all on the same page as we talk through this. Here's the first thing. Judgment is definite. Judgment is definite. I mentioned this briefly last week, uh, but, but let's just reiterate it a little bit further. Do you remember the diagnostic questions that I gave you last week with regard to evaluating biblical love uh, against dupe love? And remember, I gave you those three questions. The first question we asked was, will God judge the unrighteous one day? That was one of the, one of the things that we talked through. And we said, unapologetically, yes, he will. There will be a day of reckoning for all people, regardless of what you believe, of, of where you live, of how you live, of when you live. Everyone will give an account. Paul, the apostle, says he will have to give an account as well. All of us will be judged according to how we lived our lives. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at the scripture. Jesus has some things to say about this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. 
He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. This is not a hypothetical or metaphorical thing that Jesus is talking about here. This is a day in the future wherein you will be judged. He goes on in in John uh, 12, verse 48. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. So in here, in, in chapter 12 of John's gospel, what Jesus is saying is that on that day of judgment, there is a standard to which you will be held. So you're not just being judged sort of subjectively. There's a mark that you are intended to hit and you will be judged according to that mark. And that mark is the words of Christ. Now, of course, you will not hit that mark. No one will. That's the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus imputes this righteousness, this in, not innocence, but this not guilty verdict onto us through his work, not our own work. But it's still standard that we all have to look towards, that we will be held to on that last day. Jesus is very clear, there is a day of judgment whereby we will answer for how we lived according to what he said. Paul also talks about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in this passage, Paul is saying that on that day of judgment, there are going to be things that you thought you were going to get away with that other people thought they were going to get away with, but God, who is light and in him there is no darkness, will shine light into the darkness and reveal everything that's been done. It's going to happen. Romans 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read this one last week. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One last one just for fun, Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and then after that comes judgment. Judgment is going to take place in the future. It is a reality. It will happen. It is definite. We don't know when, but we do know it will happen. And and I want to reiterate that, by the way. We don't know when it will happen. So if you're listening to somebody or you're reading somebody who's trying to make the case that they know when it's going to happen, they are lying to you. Give your book back. Ask for your money back. It's a lie. It's all a lie. Okay, Jesus in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Not even the son knows, Jesus said. Listen to me, if the perfect son of God doesn't know when he is coming back, I doubt some guy on YouTube does. (laughs) Gotta stop with the nonsense, all right? We don't know when. We do know it will happen. Judgment is definite, but beyond that, judgment is dreadful. Revelation chapter 20 describes what this day is going to look like, and it's kind of awful. Verses 11 through 15, John says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. It is unclear to me what the sky fleeing away looks like, but it can't be good. 
This description actually mirrors much of what the Old Testament teaches concerning this last day, this day of judgment. For example, in Isaiah 51 verse 6, it says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. God says in Isaiah 34, 4, all the host of heaven will rot away, and the skies will roll up like a scroll. That's actually a verse that is almost quoted verbatim in the great hymn, It Is Well. The skies be rolled back as a scroll. It's almost right out of Isaiah 34, 4. So catch the imagery here. This is incredible. The Lord, Jesus sitting on his throne on the day of judgment will be so dreadful and so terrifying that the earth and the sky will flee from him. Isn't this uplifting? Happy Lord's Day. It gets worse. John continues in verse 12. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into a burning ring of fire. Couldn't, that was not in first service. You got that specially for you. The assumption in 1 John 4, 17 is this, that there will be a day of judgment and you are right to feel afraid about it. It is a terrifying day. Zephaniah 1:15 says a day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's like we get it, Zephaniah. It's bad. John is saying you are right to feel fear concerning this great day of judgment unless you've been perfected by the love of God. If you've been perfected by the love of God, it changes everything. If if you've been perfected by the love of God, John says, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And then verse 18 tells us why. Because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, if you are in a relationship with God, whereby you've been chosen by God, elected, born again, you've received the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, you've received the forgiveness of sin, which comes from the blood of the Son, the propitiation of Christ, all the things that John has been talking about throughout this entire letter, if that is your relationship with God, you've been loved by him, and if you've been loved by God, you have no reason to fear judgment because his love casts out fear. Yes. Listen to me. There's a reason why the Bible refers to God, why God himself refers to himself as a father. That identity of God gives us a perspective for how to understand our relationship with him. So let me give you an example of this. I talk about them a lot, but uh, I am a father of three little girls. Uh, Camelia, Victoria, and Lydia. I love them endlessly. They do things that drive me freaking crazy. I mean, just to be totally honest with you, it's like being gaslit every day as a parent, isn't it? It's like over and over again, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then it's like we go on a date night and we're leaving the house. I'm like, I miss them already. I just, it's confusing, really. I love them endlessly. But 
but they do things occasionally where they, they need to be corrected. They need to be parented. They need to be disciplined. I give them a lot of grace, but there is discipline in our home. And it feels hard for them in those moments. They feel sad when I discipline them, right? They, they don't particularly like those moments. They're not their favorite moments. They're unpleasant. But look, at no point do they ever question whether I hate their guts, never want to see them again. They never think that. Do you, do you know why? They never think, I wonder if daddy hates us now. Do you know why? Because I regularly remind them, no matter what you do, I'm always going to love you. Even when I'm angry with you, and I am angry with you right now. Even when I'm angry with you, I love you with my whole heart, and I will never, I will never abandon you. I love you endlessly, and nothing that you do changes that. Nothing that you do changes the fact that your daddy loves you. You have consequences right now because I love you, because I want the best for you, because I want you to understand how to honor God with your life. So, so when I discipline them, look, it's a fearful moment for them. They don't like that. They don't want to be disciplined. Nobody wants to be disciplined. But they never wonder if I'm going to disown them or if I'm going to stop being their daddy or if they've, if they've made one too many mistakes. Friday night, I had to discipline Lydia. And I came into her room afterwards and I sat down and I said, do you understand why you have consequences? And she was like, yes, daddy, I do. And she explained to me what it was that she did that I asked her specifically not to do. And then she goes, but I know you still love me no matter what. And I was like, yeah, that's what grace looks like. Understand that they never have those concerns. And here's why, and I want you to get this because this is important. Their security and their relationship with their daddy is built on my commitment to love them, not the other way around. The security they have in their relationship with their father is built not on their love for me, but on my commitment to love them. And that security is strengthened every time they are disciplined because they're disciplined, but I don't leave. I continue to reinforce my love and reaffirm my love even in spite of the fact that they're now dealing with consequences for their actions. They love me because I love them first. Understand that. They didn't learn to love me. They learned to love me back because I loved them first. And that love gives them confidence in our relationships and confidence when they stand in consequence before me for the things that they've done wrong. You, as a Christian, have a father committed to loving you regardless. You will face a judgment day. It will happen for everyone. It is definite. And more than that, it will be dreadful. It's not, a, it's not a day to look forward to. It's not a day to celebrate. But John's point here is that the love of God is going to be perfected or completed in your life when you stand in that judgment without fear because perfect love casts out fear. You can have confidence in this day of judgment, not because you didn't do anything wrong, not because you don't have anything to answer for, but because God loved you first and his love cast out fear. That's what verse 19 says. We love because he loved first. You love God, understand this, the moment you decided to love God was not the moment your love relationship began because God loved you long before you loved him. And that love cast away fear. It gives you confidence that you're not going to sit under punishment. You may be disciplined in this life, but God is not going to condemn you because he's covered you with the blood of his son and he has promised not to desert you, not to abandon you, to never give up on you, to want the best for you and at one point in your life call you home to him. So here's what it means practically for you. It means stop living in fear. Stop living in fear. You have a choice before you every single day of your life 
to either live in your identity as a son or daughter of God, covered by the blood of Jesus, and to honor him as your father, who chooses to love you endlessly and wants the best for you, or to live in your former identity and the fear of judgment that you deserve apart from the love of God. You know, it it occurred to me this week, we talk as Christians, and particularly in conservative circles, about the absurdity of things like gender identity confusion, of, of identifying with a gender that you were very clearly not created for. Many of you, you know, in, in conversations with you, when we talk about these things, you're like, yeah, that's absurd, isn't it? It makes no sense at all. And yet, you sometimes choose to live in an identity of fear rather than love that you've been given through the blood of Jesus. You have identity confusion every day of your life. Every time you walk in fear, you choose an identity that is not yours as a Christian. You choose to identify as something that you're not. Every time you operate out of fear, every time you hide your sin rather than confess it, every time you act codependently in relationships that you're in, Every time you practice image management, sort of sweep it under the rug, don't let anyone know, lest they think otherwise about you. All of that is just an identity of fear that you choose to live in when you do that. But if you are a Christian, you've been loved by God and perfect love casts out fear, you don't have to live that way anymore. You have a choice. You will either choose love or you will choose fear. But look at me, you can't choose both. You will either do one or the other. They're mutually exclusive to one another. They don't exist together. How about this second one? This is the second choice that John gives us. The choice between love and hate. Look at verses 20 and 21. John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is one of those passages that uh, I think we'd rather pretend just doesn't exist, right? John is saying you cannot love God and hate your brother. Even if they're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. (laughs) Looking at you, Turner. They're mutually exclusive things. You can't do this. They can't exist in the same space. You either love God and that love spills over into all of your relationships or you hate your brother and that reveals you don't actually possess the love of God nor do you actually love him. There is this myth in the Christian faith that the validity of your faith is solely measured by your love for God. That's it. The validity of your faith solely measured by your love for God. So as long as you love God, you say you love God, you listen to worship music, you pray a lot, you get rid of all of your TVs, you, you throw away all your secular music, burn your secular CDs, hear the demons hissing as they're on fire, right? Remember that? And, and you only read your Bible and pray and meditate day in and day out like me, then that is all that matters, right? Never mind that you're harsh with people, that you gossip about them, that you slander other people. None of that matters. None of that matters. It's fine if you're cruel or uncaring to other Christians. As long as you love God, you're good. John is reminding us, that's not true. That's a lie. 
The validity of your faith is not solely measured by your love for God, but also in how you love others. You can't separate the two. The relationship that you have with God and your relationship with other people are mutually connected, which is why it is mutually exclusive to love one and hate the other. You can't do it. They're inseparable. This is what we refer to here as the vertical horizontal connection. The vertical horizontal connection. This refers to the way by which our vertical relationship with the Father is connected to our horizontal relationships with other people. And the Bible says very clearly these are inseparable relationships. So consider for a moment what scripture has to say about this. We saw the connection here in the primary text. You cannot love God and hate your brother. What else does the Bible say? We see it in a few other places. What about the so-called great commandment? It's found in a couple of different places in various different gospels, uh, probably most notably in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, Jesus is approached by a lawyer who is a Pharisee who is really attempting to trick Jesus or trap him, which by the way, never works out for anyone. And he says in verse 36 to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds, this is his answer, verses 37 through 40. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's saying that, yeah, the great commandment, love God. That's the first great commandment. And the Pharisees are like, whew, nailing that one, doing well. And Jesus is like, and there's a second one just like the first one. You gotta love your neighbor as well. And they're like, dang, right? I mean, this is not what we wanna hear. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time in this sermon series talking about the love that we have specifically for other Christians, one another, and the the community of faith. That is not what the great commandment is referring to. This is that one instance, it's a pretty big instance, where uh, neighbor is, is not a one another in the Christian context. Neighbor is anyone, people in your life, people with a pulse, not necessarily Christians. Jesus is saying the commandment to love your neighbor is exactly like the commandment to love God. You see, we naturally, we want to major on the first one. We love the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. I can do that all day long. Even though if I'm honest, I fail at it miserably. Uh, The difference is that, that God is not here in the flesh currently to make me look bad when I do fail. So I can practice image management still really well on this one. But this loving your neighbor business, I don't know. I don't like this one as much. It's much easier uh, to love God than it is to love your neighbor. This is much messier. It's much more difficult to hide our poor treatment of other people than it is to hide our poor treatment of God because we can fake devotion to God to other people. I'm not fooling God. God knows my heart, but it's easy to convince other people that I'm this like super spiritual person, right? It's not as easy to fake mistreatment of other people because people have this annoying way of telling everyone and blowing your cover, right? But Jesus and the New Testament are gonna come back over and over and over again and remind us that no, your treatment for other people, your love for other people is intricately connected to your love for God. And it's cyclical as well. The more you love God, the more you love people. The more you love people, the more your capacity to love God increases and then the more you love God and then the more you love people. And, and it goes on and on in a cycle. But, but it's a choice, isn't it? It's a choice. You have to choose this. And that choice is difficult, is it not? It's hard enough to, to love people when they behave well. But what about when they're jerks? What about when they've sinned against you? What about when they've wronged you, when they've, when they've mistreated you, when they've treated you unfairly? How hard is it to love them then? But John says in verse 21, this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. There, there's, no, there's no qualifiers here. There's no exception clauses. There's no like, well, unless they're, you know, a part of the other political party. And then they're going to hell. No, that's, that's not what Jesus says. It's, it's pretty simple. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love God. These two commandments serve as the foundation for all the law and the prophets. You can summarize the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament for dummies. That's really what it is. Is right there. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, these last few years have been very difficult. And, and I've said that a lot. And you've heard other people say that a lot. And, and it's true. And I think it, it bear, it's, it's worth repeating. There's a lot of tension in the world. And it seems like with every passing day and week and month, it gets worse. There's just like another thing, right? Right now, we're in the first weekend of June. And if you know anything about June, you know that every year, the world celebrates Pride Month. It's celebrated every year. It's not new. It shouldn't come as a surprise. But this year feels different, more aggressive. Was it Walmart Friday, Thursday, Friday? And, and walked past the the makeup section, there's this huge poster of three people with all of this makeup, two of which are women, one of which is a man, very clearly. It's, it's kind of everywhere right now. And, and that means that there's more and more pressure on you as a Christian to conform to the world, to give that up, to just, you know, be okay with it, quit being such a bigot. It creates tension, doesn't it, in your life? You're not really sure how to deal with that. Beyond that, there's political tension, loads of political tension. There's racial tension. All of these things pile up and they, they, they increase and they continue and, and here you are, as Christians, you're thrust into the middle of it all. And there's a lot of pressure on you from secular people, from the world, from people maybe that you go to school with if you're in school, maybe even from your job. To, to endorse certain things or to, to be okay with certain things. And here is my concern for you as your pastor is that you're gonna see all these things going on in, in your life. And if you're not careful, if you're not protecting your heart, you're gonna begin to live your life in fear of what comes next. Like just when you think the world couldn't get any crazier and it's like, right? Wait till next month. And what happens is oftentimes we begin living in fear of where this is all going. You know, what's going to happen next week, next month, next year, next year in an election season? And beyond that, you begin to live with a lot of hate in your heart towards those who oppose you and what you believe, who mock you for believing what you believe, who make fun of you, who would like to silence you, who would rather you go away. And, and so, Listen to me, every day of your life, when you wake up and you decide to honor God with your life, to honor Jesus with your life, you are presented with a choice. You will either live in love, again, in action, rooted in the truth of scripture. It doesn't mean loving what other people are doing. It means loving the people and speaking truth to them in love, or you will choose hate and fear but you can't choose both. 
Either one of those things you can choose, but you can't have them at the same time because they are gonna drive the pulse of your life. They're gonna drive every action that you make. They're gonna inform every word that you speak and the spirit behind which you speak them. You can either live as a child of God, fully redeemed, fully confident in the future, not because the future is getting better, but because the Lord reigns and one day there will be justice on the earth in the day of judgment, or you can live with the fear of the future and hate for those who reject you and what you believe, but you can't have both. They're mutually exclusive things. John says you can have confidence in the future because God loves you and perfect love casts out fear and so love others as you yourself desire to be loved. And when we do that, listen to me, God's love reaches its end goal in your life. It enables you to do something that you on your own could never do. It enables you to have confidence in the future despite how bad it looks and to have love in your heart for people despite how bad they're acting. Not to endorse what they're doing, but to demonstrate the kind of grace and mercy that you yourself were given by Christ. When we do that, we become the witness that the world so desperately needs. The church has to look different than the rest of the world. And when we say that, the church has to look different, it doesn't mean like, do they have guitars on the stage? That's a stupid argument. What makes us look different is not stained glass windows, but a blood-stained life in the way that we relate to and love others in the same way Christ loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, that you love us before we loved you, before we knew you, you knew us, and you call us into your family, and your love cast out fear, and, and we rejoice in that. God, we know that Apart from you, we deserve judgment. And so we rejoice in the blood of Jesus that covers us, the hope that we have for a future. And so would you, God, by the power of your spirit that dwells within us, that gives us confidence of our salvation, would you empower us to love others with mercy, with grace, with truth, with action, that we might be the light in the world you desire us to be. We look forward to that day when we see you face to face. But until then, God, we worship you and we praise you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hey, I do want to make one quick announcement. I'm going to announce it next week as well, and I forgot to say it for service. Um, the, the, the student camps that are going to camp in July. So middle school is July 6th through the 10th. High school is like July 27th through the 31st, I think. 20, yeah, I think that's right, 27th through the 31st. They are looking for cooks right now that can just sort of take charge and cook for those camps. We run our whole camp. I don't know if many of you know that. We, we don't go to a camp, we go to the ranch and we do camp. And that means that we need people who can step up and come and serve in those capacities. Uh, of course, uh, you don't have to buy the food yourself. We just need you to plan it and cook it. Uh, and so if that's something that sounds like a lot of fun to you and that you would like to do together maybe with a couple of other people, would you please reach out to either Aaron Nelson or June Barker and let us know. We really need that help. We don't want these kids just eating cereal the whole time. You know what I mean? It'd be really devastating. Uh, pray about that. Let us know. God bless you. We'll see you next time.